Hey everyone, and welcome to At The Letters for February 27th, 2024. Ben Nicholson-Smith here with you, Arden Swelling, now located in Florida, down there to cover spring training for Sportsnet. Arden, how's it going today? Well, man, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting that the year started. Spring training is uh, always my favorite assignment of the year. As you know, nobody's in a slump yet. Nobody's lost a game yet. Nobody's injured yet. Uh, the access is impeccable. Obviously, can't complain with the climate. So uh, I love covering spring training every year. Yeah, it's nice to settle in for a few days, too, or more than a few days, sometimes a few weeks. I'll be down there in a couple of days myself, really looking forward to, to joining you down there and joining the rest of the Blue Jays uh, environment uh, down there. But it's definitely, it's it's unlike anything else, because if you're covering a couple of days in Milwaukee or a couple of days in Chicago or Arizona or whatever the case, you don't necessarily settle in to the full extent that you can in spring. At the same time, Man, it is. There's a lot going on, right? Like once you get down there, like there is a. There's so many players. There's so many coaches. There are games. Sometimes two games in one day. It is a busy time. Well, yeah, you're just thrown right back onto the merry-go-round, and it's uh, moving at a very high rate of speed. And you're coming off of the off season when uh, you know life's been a bit slower and more predictable. So absolutely, like it's a lot to get a handle on but it's also just a ton of opportunity to learn things gain information talk to people i mean everybody in the organization is here in one centralized place it's the only time during the entire calendar that that is the case uh and especially at this point in spring training like you still have all the minor league guys hanging around in the clubhouse so you know if i want to go chat to an alan Roden or a phil clark or uh, Damiano Palmegiani or whoever, like they're all there. And if I want to talk to the people who have coached those guys, like in Dunedin or Vancouver or New Hampshire, they're all on the campus uh, in the complex somewhere. So, uh, you know, it is really like a great opportunity to just set yourself up for the year uh, and put yourself in a good position to uh, have, you know, be at our best covering the Toronto Blue Jays. Well said. You know, it sounds um, like something a player might say as they're preparing for for the season. But you know what? We have to do our our preparation too, and that's now underway for you. We should say as well. This episode produced by Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade, available where you find your podcast. So, um, thanks for listening uh, as we continue our our ATL uh, spring coverage. But you know, Arden, now that you've been down there and you've had the chance to sort of check in on some of these players and, and decision makers around the team. I guess just to put it to you broadly, what is jumping out to you so far? Uh, a few things like some of the young guys certainly have been tough to miss. Like Alan Roden has looked really good and plenty of people in the organization who will sing his praises and just the the work that he did over the offseason. He was pretty much in Dunedin um, throughout the winter, save for like a brief stage at driveline where he went to go work in their hitting lab. And he's changed his swing pretty considerably from last year. And I just think he's a really interesting guy in this organization to watch. Final frame. Here's a blast to deep right field by Alan Rodin. Looking up is Gilbert. It is gone. The same thing about Connor Cook, whose stuff is just electric. And, uh, you know, you can scout the the, uh, the stat line with him and see the 40% strikeout rates coming up the Blue Jays system. But, I mean, when you see his stuff in real life, it's just, it's big league stuff. And he's a serious competitor, very intense on the mound. Cook from the belt, exhales and delivers a 3-2. Swing and a miss, strike three. 
Martin chased the slider, might have gotten a piece, but Richie holds on. Been really impressed with what I've seen from him. And then it's it's cool to check in on some of the veteran guys in camp as well who are trying to crack the Blue Jays roster. So you think about like the Eduardo Escobars and Daniel Vogelbach's of this world and just like being closer to it now, you know, you get a better read of where things are trending and how stuff is progressing in the spring and you know, I know last week we kind of talked about whether Escobar and Vogelbach are legit pieces for the Blue Jays this year or whether they're just long shots and, uh, you know, just in camp for uh, for a look. I'm starting to think Daniel Vogelbach is actually a part of this team and actually has a very real pathway to being with the Blue Jays on opening day. I think that that left-handed bat is something that they want off their bench. I think they like Vogelbach a great deal. And even just from talking to him a bit, um, he had other options this winter coming into camp. I mean, he could have gone other places on minor league deals, but he came to the Blue Jays because they really made him feel wanted uh, and they made him feel like he's got a really good path to being a part of this team. And he knows a lot of guys with this team as well from earlier in his career. So I do think that, you know, I do think the odds of him being with the Blue Jays, just in my mind, are higher now than when he was first signed. Nice. Yeah. So that's um, that's some good intel then about Vogelback, how he could fit in. Yeah, I think on paper, there's a role for him. As we talked about last week, this is a guy who can really hit that right-handed pitching. It's funny, in spring, you've seen actually a bunch of left-handed pitchers pitch against him, which is probably kind of not that useful for him because he's probably not going to face a lot of lefties, but it's useful for the pitchers. Anyway, I, I mean, I think that he will have a role on this team. Um, so that's that's interesting to hear. Eduardo Escobar, what's your read on him and how he fits on this roster at this point? I think it's still going to be tough for him to be on the roster without there being some kind of trade uh, just to consolidate not only the 40 man, but just like that log jam of second base, third base types between your Santiago Espinals and Davis Schneiders and Ernie Clements. I mean, the Blue Jays like Ernie Clements and they think he's a very useful player that that they could use. Um, I feel like the Blue Jays are looking at running some interesting platoons at second and third base this year and not necessarily just right-handed left-handed platoons but like swing path platoons so somebody like a clement who's got like a really flat swing and a really contact oriented bat could you know platoon well with somebody who's got a bit more of a power predicated approach maybe a bit more of like an uppercut swing you know somebody like isaiah kiner falafa he just barrels high-velocity four-seam fastballs. And I don't know why, but if you look back in his career, like he hit a Kevin Gosman four-seamer out last year. He's gotten to Verlander. Um, he got to Garrett Cole before Kiner Falefa was with the Yankees. So like that is just a pitch type that he excels against, that he sees well, and he gets his barrel to very well. So you could see like a Kiner Falefa starting against a pitcher with a really good four-seamer, whereas someone else starts against the sinker guy or the guy who's more reliant on spin and off speed. So, you know, I do think that Ernie Clement is somebody that the Blue Jays like and, you know, who I could see being on their bench and he's out of options. So that's part of the equation yeah. here as well. So this is all to say that without somebody exiting the picture um, for the Blue Jays and those kind of second base, third base bench roles, it's hard to see Eduardo Escobar working his way in. Yeah, agreed with that. I mean, just seems like he'll need a couple things to break his way. The Clement stuff is interesting, right? Because you look at what he did last year, and his numbers were really good. He hit 380, 
tiny sample, huge BABIP. I mean, not believing that he's obviously anywhere close to a 300 major league hitter, let alone a 380 major league hitter. Um, but yeah, when you have someone who has some speed, which Clement does, some versatility, I mean, there's a pathway for him, as just as there is maybe a pathway for Escobar, but both of those guys might need a couple things to break their way. We'll see. We know that Kevin Biggio is a little bit behind when it comes to his progression. So, you know, again, as we record this, it's February. There's a long time to go before we actually get to that roster crunch. But safe to say, it sounds like Clement, um, Escobar, those guys are at least in the mix as they're starting games up. Well, when you think about a guy like Biggio, someone who has struggled a bit at times against velocity in his career, right? So you think about some of these platoons the Blue Jays could be running just based on swing planes and swing paths and how they match up against different pitchers. Yeah, I mean, you're probably starting the Kiner-Falefa against a pitcher with a really hard forcing fastball before you're starting Biggio, maybe even regardless of the lefty-righty thing. Like, as we know, platoons go so much further beyond just you start your lefties against the righties and you start your righties against the lefties. And the way the Blue Jays construct their roster, it's unlikely to be perfectly balanced anyway. Like you're likely to be sacrificing platoon advantage at some point. So if you can get somebody in who um, profiles well against just what you're going to see from the pitcher, um, I I think that that's going to play into it as well. So, you know, that's all part of kind of the the puzzle pieces that the Blue Jays are trying to to make fit here is they decide how to construct like the most competitive roster over several months, not necessarily just for opening day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've already looked at the um, likely pitching matchups for Tampa and for Houston in that first <laughs> uh, you know week of the season, and I I don't know. I bet someone in the Jays organization has done the same. Like it's. It's one of those things where, yeah, we're going to talk about this in the abstract, but end of the day, you need people who will, in a concrete way, help you against whether it's Urquidy or Framber Valdez or Javier or, you know, whoever it is that's pitching against you that series, you need actual useful skill sets that help you in real ways. Well, and do the Rays have a left-handed starter? No, it's all righties. I don't believe that they do. So that makes things kind of interesting with a Davis Schneider who, look, everybody is just like putting him in in permanent markers being on the Blue Jays roster to begin the season. Well, the matchups might not be there for him and he might be a guy where the Blue Jays actually utilize the option that they have on him. Um, You know, it's something that's likely to happen at some point this season regardless. And maybe Davis Schneider actually starts the year at Buffalo and comes back up when the matchups are are more ideal for his profile. Yeah, you could do it that way. Maybe you roster him and you use him as a pinch hitter against a Colin Pochet, you know, late in the game at some point. You know, there are lots of different ways that you could do this. Uh, and, And of course, lots sort of to play out still. But before we move on to Alec Manoa here, Arden, any other early spring observations from your first stretch on the ground there? Uh, I think Brendan Little is going to be an interesting guy for the Blue Jays. This is a, you know, a lefty that they acquired from the Chicago Cubs at like the 11th hour before he became a minor league free agent. And I mean like literally an hour before Brendan Little yeah. was going to become, literally an hour before he was going to become a a minor league free agent this winter. And like what's interesting to me about that is like the Blue Jays didn't have to do that. They traded cash to the Cubs for him, acquired him and put him on their 40 man roster to keep him from reaching free agencies. So 
that really tells you something about what they see in Little and about how much they like him because they could have allowed him to just reach free agency and then sign him to a minor league deal and not had to you know worry about using the 40-man spot. But clearly they didn't want to compete for him on the open roster and felt strongly about him, strongly enough about him to give them one of their 40 spots on their roster. And we know how much teams covet those 40-man roster spots. So this is a guy that... The organization likes he added a cutter towards the end of the 2023 season. He was really looking for something that he could use into righties because he does like to work away from righties with his sinker, which, by the way, is like a great pitch. We're talking mid 90s up to 97 with a ton of drop, a bunch of run on it like it is a big league sinker and it is obviously devastating against lefties. But Brandon Lowe's going to need something to get righties out. And when he's tried to work away from righties with that sinker, they've just kind of hung out over the plate um, and started to barrel that pitch. So now he's got this cutter that he can kind of bore in on them and get weak contact, keep them off of the sinker. It, it just makes everything more effective. And then he also throws a, a spike curveball that's like, upper 80s it is a you know a lot of pitch trackers kind of classify it as a slider because it looks almost like a bullet slider but it is a curveball so Brandon Little is like you know he's not somebody who's going to win the Blue Jays World Series or anything but he is that sort of Jay Jackson Matt Gage guy who is optionable likely to be up and down this season look if Tim Meza or Genesis Cabrera has an injury he could easily slot in there but Regardless, I think that Brandon Little is likely to throw like 25 to 30 effective innings for the Blue Jays this year. And I know that's not like the boldest, sexiest prediction, but I, you know, I I do think that that is something that, uh, you know, I've had my eye on here at camp. Well, and finding those guys is, is so important, right? I mean, you think about just how many innings you have to cover in a season. It's like 1,400, it's 1,500 innings that you have to cover in a season. So not all of those are going to come from your top guys. And finding someone like a Brandon Little, who, as you outlined at sportsnet.ca, where you can find the piece for anyone who hasn't read it, I mean, this is a guy who seems kind of to be on the cusp of the majors and maybe not a favorite to break camp, but as you said, someone who has major league stuff and seems ready to contribute in some way. Yeah, he went to driveline over the winter and, you know, worked on that cutter, got a lot better. He got down to Dunedin in like mid-January. Blue Jays threw him in in the pitching lab and worked on him with his biomechanics and kind of worked on him with his load and helping him be a bit quicker and, and just move more linearly towards the plate, so just more directional towards the plate. This is something Blue Jays will do with a lot of guys, just increase their velocity. Uh, that's why Mitch White's throwing 98 all of a sudden, because the, the Blue Jays have worked on some postural stuff with him and some biomechanical stuff with him, some stuff in his load and just the the way he syncs up his delivery, uh, the Blue Jays have some good ideas of how to help guys tap into some velocity when they're not being particularly efficient in their delivery. So Brandon Little was like down in Dunedin in January working on that stuff. He threw a bunch of live bullpens before camp even broke. So that's why I see him out here in spring games at like, 96 97 because he's been throwing for a while and uh, you know the Blue Jays feel he's in a really good position to help him this year yeah that's a good step all right so Alec Manoa uh, I'm going to give you the numbers and I'm going to give you my opinion and then I want to hear your thoughts here so the numbers in his start his first start of the spring of course one and two-thirds innings three hits four runs all earned one walk no strikeouts three hit by pitches including one 
that went off the head of Spencer Torkelson. Now, velo-wise, he was up to a max of 95.5, his sinker average 93, and his four-seamer average 93.7. So those are the hard facts of what happened with Alec Manoa's start. My thoughts on this, I mean, look, the last time you pitched in a major league setting, or not even a major league setting, but in a professional setting was more than six months ago. I'm not sure that we would have expected pinpoint command here. I don't think it's a good thing that he was missing the way he was missing and throwing as many balls as he was. I think it was, I don't have actually the balls and strikes in front of me, but I'll I'll look that up. I I don't think it's a good thing, but I don't think it's catastrophic. You know, if you had Greg Maddox on the mound, it wouldn't have mattered if he had taken a six-month layoff. He would not be uh, scattering the way Alec Manoa was today, but he doesn't have to be Greg Maddox to be a very, very good pitcher. He can still be effective. And yeah, it was 17 strikes out of 38 pitches was his total. Um, So I don't think this is a particularly good thing. I don't think it sounds like a particularly good start. I wasn't there. I wasn't watching it in person. But I also think that, look, six months after making an appearance, he deserves a little bit of time to sort this out. And this is why you have spring training, to give yourself the opportunity to work out some of these things. Yeah, anybody's first spring start is uh, a situation that you have to give a pitcher some grace in because they're back on the mound for the first time in a long time after a long layoff from being in a game environment and facing live hitters. But for Alec Manoa, it's even longer because the last time that he actually faced a hitter uh, from another team in a game would have been last August. So it's one start. You know, Jose Barrios had a really bad start in spring training last year and then another at the WBC and he was fine. So it doesn't tell you everything, but I think it is safe to say that this is not what Alec Manoa was trying to do on Tuesday. He was trying to be more precise in the zone. He was trying to land his pitches for strikes. Uh, I know a big focus for him this spring has been maintaining his release point, particularly with his slider. And just from the way that, as you said, he was scattering, uh, I would imagine that his release point was more inconsistent than the Blue Jays would have wanted it to be. So I think that that is going to be a continued work in progress. The, The good news is that the velocity was there. That's a big thing. The Blue Jays want to see that. Alec Manoa needs some velocity to be effective at, at the big league level. Um, I think it's also a good thing that he threw a couple sliders that had that 14 to 15 inches of horizontal break that uh, you know he's been looking for and the Blue Jays have been looking for. But I do just think that the slider wasn't consistent enough for him to be effective on Tuesday. So that's going to be something that we're going to need to keep an eye on because Manoa has been trying to get to a place with the slider where he's not, um, he would say babying it. So that means just kind of guiding it into the zone and like trying to land it for a strike. Like he needs to just whip that thing with conviction and with belief and trust that it is going to come out the way that he intends it to and then get the reaction from a hitter that that he is seeking um, whether it's in or outside the zone so like that's the point of trust that he needs to get to with that pitch he wasn't there with it last year when he was really just trying to aim it um, and just trying to get it into the zone for a strike so he didn't walk somebody else so I do think that just him finding that 
natural rhythm with his delivery, that tempo down the mound and that ability to not be thinking about throwing strikes and just be convicted in what he's actually doing. That's, that's where he's trying to get to. And he's going to have a few more spring starts here to continue to kind of take those steps. Yeah. He's got another month to figure this out. You know, you look at the the slider, he did get one swing and miss on that pitch, three swings and misses total out of the 38 pitches. So not great. You'd rather see more swing and miss, but then again, I'm sort of, of two minds here because in no way can you look at this and say like it's universally a good thing but at the same time like you know we're in an era where everything is analyzed so much right like this game didn't happen to be on tv but a lot of the spring games are televised on Sportsnet, which is great it's fun to watch them but it does put a microscope on the players and you even look at the baseball savant and we're talking about how much break there is on his slider i'm sitting here in toronto right now and i can tell you exactly how hard he was throwing like it is under the microscope in a way that he hasn't been uh, for the last six months in a way that pitchers certainly weren't 15 years ago when you think about what spring training was uh, even at that point in time, let alone 30 years ago. So, you know, there is a level of intensity on everything around Alec Manoa. But at the same time, look, he wants to succeed in the major leagues. That's part of what he has to do. That's part of what he has to work against because the major leagues are a spectacle. And that means that there are always going to be eyeballs on him. He has to find ways to overcome these these challenges mechanically and physically and, and mentally potentially to get to the point that he is just unleashing that slider and getting the results that we saw in 2021 and 22. Yeah, and the Blue Jays have been encouraged with what they've seen in, in side sessions and um, bullpens to this point. And sometimes it can be tough for that to translate to the mound, particularly in spring training when you're taking this one-day road trip to Lakeland and you're pitching in a minor league ballpark and it's like 1 o'clock in the afternoon and the atmosphere is weird and the mound is weird, right? And they're unfamiliar environments and maybe you don't have access to all the stuff that you typically would in your routine as, as a big league star. So I think all of that plays a part as well. But look, certainly this is not what Alec Manoa was looking to do in his first start of spring. It's not what the Blue Jays were looking for, although I do think there are some positives they'll take from it. It's really on Alec Manoa now to just be better his next time out and the time after that and the time after that and just look for little incremental gains, little wins and little bits of progress that he can keep layering in as he works towards spring training. Like if he can just be better each time out, from here towards the end of camp, he'll put himself in a really good position to start the season. And I will say this, like if he was out there and he was throwing 80 or 70% strikes, 75% strikes, just pounding the zone, but he was sitting 89, 90, that would be more concerning to me. So, you know, here he is, he's not throwing strikes. He's walking guys, he's hitting guys, he's not locating. None of that's great, but the velo is there. That's a real thing. So, I'm imagining like the conversation that happens between Pete Walker and John Schneider and, uh, you know, if Schneider even says anything to Manoa about this in between starts. And my guess is, tell me what you think, but my guess is that Pete says to to Manoa, you know what, great job out there. Love the intensity you brought. And let's let's keep working on that release point and finding ways to make that consistent and just pound the zone, throw strikes and, you know, we'll we'll get them next time. Yeah, anything that he's struggled with on Tuesday is stuff that the Blue Jays have already been working with with him on. So I, I doubt he needs any kind of reinforcement about the release point or about his tempo down the mound or his mechanics being in sync, any of that stuff. I mean, a lot of this is what he has been hammering away at for a very long time now. So yeah, if you're Pete Walker, I think you just 
say to Alec Manoa, all right, here's what went well in that start. Like, here's what we're going to build on. Here's what we're going to work on in your side between starts. And hey, so what, today was what, 36 pitches? Hey, your next time out, we're, we're trying to get you to 45. We're trying to get you to 50. And that's your focus is just to like continue building. It would be interesting to look back on like what Alec Manoa's first spring start of 2023 looked like like i wouldn't be surprised if it went pretty well and if he looked like alec manoa and then we all know what yeah. the regular season looked like after that so you know your, your first spring start really doesn't tell you anything about how somebody's season is going to go but i i don't think it's irrelevant like i do think that you know some of the things that we saw from alec manoa on tuesday absolutely need to get better but I mean, there are like 45 pitchers in Blue Jays camp who have things that they need to get better at. Even Kevin Gosman, even Chris Bassett, like nobody is out here throwing perfect games every time they're on the mound. Oh, especially Chris Bassett, who's, who seems to be, you know, pretty hard on himself, even after a season where he throws 200 innings and wins 16 games, has this great year. And he's someone who is always looking for that edge. I mean, I think that's part of what it takes to to get to this level and stay at this level is to be a little bit hard on yourself when it comes to the performance um, and not being content with, you know, what's, what's good enough. Totally. Yeah. Everybody is trying to like, they're looking for that continual self-improvement. Like these are professionals at the highest level. They are chasing mastery. Every single one of them, you say Kikuchi, like he can get by in the big leagues with fastball slider curveball. Like that's really all he needs. You want to call it a slider, a cutter, whatever, but you know, the pitch that I'm referring to that like high eighties pitch that, uh, moves somewhat, uh, you know, sideways and vertically at the same time, horizontally and vertically at the same time, he can get by with those three pitches, but here he is in spring training, like still trying to incorporate the sweeper that he was trying to learn last year. He hasn't even thrown in a game yet, but he just keeps working on it in, in side sessions. And here he is also like tweaking the grip on his changeup as well, because he wants to bring that back to his arsenal and make it more of a, a part of his pitch mix in 2024. So, you know, there's, like everybody is trying to make gains and improve at this time of year. It's really what spring training is all about. For sure. Well, we'll see uh, where this takes Manoa and everyone else on that pitching staff. But for now, we'll step aside and take a quick break on At The Letters. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. All right, we are back on At The Letters. And before we dive further into baseball, just want to send our best wishes uh, to Eric Swanson's son, Toby, who was hit by a car uh, Sunday, uh, according to the Blue Jays, airlifted to a nearby hospital. And thanks to some work uh, from the folks at that Clearwater area uh, hospital and first responders, he is said to be on the road to recovery. So really wishing uh, him and Eric Swanson and their whole family all the best during this time and hoping for a very swift and full recovery. Yeah, I completely echo that. It's just, um, it's unbelievable. It's unspeakable. It's uh, unimaginable. So yeah, obviously like sending all of our best to, to Eric, his wife, Madison, Toby, obviously uh, it's just a, a terrible situation. I mean, Ben, you like me have gotten to know Eric, uh, you know, over the last year that he's been a Blue Jay, uh, you know, and he's just uh, a great presence in the Blue Jays clubhouse and he is missed right now. For sure. For sure. Baseball-wise, some more stuff to get to here as we uh, as we proceed on at the letters, and let's start with Cody Bellinger because we talked about him just last week, and since then 
he signed a, a deal with the Cubs, kind of creative deal, three years, 80 million opt-outs after the first two years. This is an interesting one because, you know, I love it for the Cubs, first of all. And I, I think it's exactly the kind of deal that they needed to make and, and a great step forward for, for that team. Don't love it as much for Bellinger. I can see why he did it. And I don't hate it for Cody Bellinger either. But th- this is a pretty interesting one. And, you know, I think if you were to go back in time and look at, hey, if the Blue Jays on November the 15th knew that this was a possibility and could snap their fingers and get Cody Bellinger on this deal, then maybe they would have done it. But, you know, you you proceed knowing what you know at the time. And Kevin Kiermaier is available. You get him. Justin Turner is available. You get him. By the time Cody Bellinger is ready to sign, well, okay, you've kind of already made your moves. So, you know, I don't think the Blue Jays were serious uh, or close to signing Bellinger at any point. They obviously did have some level of interest in him. So it's sort of revisionist history and sort of pointless to, you know, imagine how close it could have been. But I do think it's a really interesting deal. And yeah, what do you think about it when you heard that the Cubs had had signed him? Yeah, similar to you like I don't think that the Blue Jays were doing this deal um and we talked about this last week like these kinds of deals were on the table for Cody Bellinger pretty much all off season and that's the gambit with uh the the game that him and Scott Boris played this off season and asking for a very high value over a very long term uh if he wasn't going to get it and he got deep enough into spring training that he was uncomfortable with not being on a team he was going to fall back on on one of these deals on one of these pillow contracts that teams love for obvious reasons i don't think it's the worst outcome in the world for cody bellinger like he's still guaranteed 80 million dollars and he's going to make 30 million this year so he's basically making the same salary mookie bets is this year that's not bad and he can re-enter free agency next year when he'll be what 29 um and if he's proven it again that what he did in 23 was real uh he re-enters free agency and he can make up the money like we've seen these pillow contracts work for other players in the past where instead of getting the super long-term guarantee which obviously is preferable but if that's not out there they kind of make it up in chunks and in installments in like a three-year pillow contract and then a four-year deal and then two years after that or what have you it's not ideal it puts a lot of pressure on the player to stay healthy and to perform but it is a viable path and if Cody Bellinger reverts to the guy that he was at the end of his Dodgers tenure when he was non-tendered and like a below league average hitter well he's still guaranteed 80 million dollars on top of the what 50 or 60 that he's already earned in his career so if he if it turns out that he really just is not that dude anymore and just isn't that good anymore he can still walk away from his career having earned like close to 150 million dollars so it's not the worst outcome in the world for him clearly the market for the nine-figure long-term deal just wasn't there so to end up with 80 million guaranteed with opt-outs between each year i don't think it's the worst thing in the world for him yeah for sure he still has a lot of control he's still with a really good team uh you know Playing in Chicago, I could think of a lot worse places to play than Wrigley Field on a team that should contend. Um, so there's a lot to like from his standpoint. I think best case scenario is probably something like 200 million and two or 250 million. And you know, let's remember Brandon Nimmo last offseason got 160. And 
you know, I, I don't see a lot of people talking about Brandon Nimmo as though he's this like franchise cornerstone player. And so I think that 160 going into the offseason was sort of a reasonable floor for Bellinger, who has an MVP on his resume and a rookie of the year on his resume and had this great season with the Cubs just last year. And he's 28 years old. So I actually think like if you're looking at this objectively, I, I think Boris didn't play this one particularly well. I think that he might have set the price too high. I heard some rumblings that his asking price was way above 200 million. And, you know, I, I you know, if that was the case, then he did misplay this because you end up at 80. Well, he should ask for a lot. It's not like he, well, I don't know this, but like I can't, it's not like he turned down 180 or 170. I doubt it. Maybe yeah. that was out there at the beginning of the offseason. I doubt it. I just don't think that market was there for Cody Bellinger this winter for a bunch of reasons that you know we talked about prior, whether that's teams with luxury tax concerns or teams that are spooked by the instability in the regional sports network market, teams that typically might spend but are now rebuilding or like teams that are very savvy and trust data and look at the red flags and Cody Bellinger's profile as extremely red. So uh, I just don't think it was a very good market for him, but he can return to the to free agency next year, perhaps with better market conditions. Uh, perhaps the market conditions that were similar to what got Brandon Nimmo what he got. So like this you know, people just are just rush to dunk on Scott Boris whenever he doesn't yes. land some sort of record-setting contract. <laughs> yeah, and like I just, I, I think it's a little bit ridiculous. Like his track record speaks for itself, just as it oh. pertains to the Blue Jays. And I'll let you go on Boris, yeah. but I did want to wrap up on what you had mentioned earlier. Like we know there was very real interest in the past, particularly when Bellinger signed the what one-year, seventeen and a half million dollar deal with the Cubs. Yeah, uh, like the Blue Jays were absolutely. In on that, uh, I will say it takes mutual interest in order to uh, reach an agreement. And when you were talking about like one year deals or pillow contracts, there are a host of teams that are going to be involved like at those rates because every team wants to make that deal. So at that point, it really does come down to player preference and the player really can choose what situation, what environment they feel most comfortable in. They feel like gives them the best opportunity to be successful, to have opportunity to play regularly where they want to live, where their family wants to live. Like there are a million different factors at play here. And so when you're talking about like the value and the term that Cody Bellinger has been signing for the last couple of times that he was in free agency, he has a, a lot of choice there and it really does come down a lot to what his interests are. For sure. It is ultimately going to be a personal choice. As for Boris, yeah, I, I think you know what I think and probably some of our listeners do too. Like, I, I think the guy's a legend. I think that when you look at the scope of what he's been able to do across decades in Major League Baseball, you look at it objectively, the guy gets huge contracts. He sets records. Um, he gets really strong deals for his clients. You look at it just from an entertainment standpoint, he is so, you know, sometimes it's really cheesy, but he's so outspoken and he's willing to say stuff and he's a creative thinker. I really enjoyed that. I think put him in the Hall of Fame right now. I think he's, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean that seriously. Like he is, he, if he totally belongs in the Baseball Hall of Fame and I would love to hear that speech. And I think that, yeah, at the same time, he's not infallible. And as you said, there every time that he 
you know, missteps a little bit. There are tons of people in the industry, whether it's rival agents or executives who are, you know, secretly a little or, or maybe not secretly kind of pleased that he doesn't get the result that he was hoping for. But I think in this case, when I'm looking at this, I don't know what happened behind the scenes. But if he said like maybe Boris said to teams at the beginning of the offseason, we see Bellinger like Seeger, meaning Corey Seeger, $300 million. And okay, like that's not necessarily explicitly asking for 300 million, but it's setting an expectation. And if he goes into the offseason and he says, we see him like Brandon Nimmo, which I guarantee he didn't say that. If if he had, then Bellinger might have ended up with twice the guarantee that he actually got. Yeah, I'd be interested to know if that timeline could have played out or if teams just were not willing to guarantee the kind of term and value that he was seeking based off of Cody Bellinger's uh, recent track record. Like there's a lot of red flags there and there's a lot of inconsistency there. Like Nimmo obviously had the, uh, the injury concerns, although he was coming off of like a very healthy season, but whenever he was on the field, like he was consistently a 130 or higher Wade runs created plus guy. Like he had, you know, put that on paper, whereas Cody Bellinger has had some really substantial valleys that Nimmo just hasn't had. And there are some real legitimate concerns in his batted ball profile from last year. So it it seems like he's just going to have to prove it again and uh, show teams that, you know, are, are data driven and don't just look at your RBIs and home runs uh, that, uh, you know, look at a bit more than that and and the shape of your contact and how you come about your results. uh, He's going to have to show them a bit more this year. But like I said, with the opt outs, he can go back into free agency next year and get himself better than the, uh, the two years and $50 million that he'll have the choice of opting into. If he has a disastrous season, he can sign up for two years and $50 million uh, playing at Wrigley. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it's a disastrous deal. I think it's I think it's okay. I think it's really nice for the Cubs. But okay, so then there's still these other free agents out there. And I still think, you know, when you look at the pitchers, Snell and Montgomery, when you look at the teams that need pitching, whether it's the Red Sox or whether it's the Giants, maybe the Angels, maybe the Orioles, you know, there are a lot of teams out there that I think could still use those pitchers. So I still think that they get nine figure deals, big guarantees, and do pretty well for themselves. But I wonder what this means for Matt Chapman. And I'm going to be really curious to see where Chapman lands and for what kind of guarantee, because I do think that out of the three really prominent Boris guys remaining, Chapman probably has the least leverage. Oh, I think so. Particularly if the Cubs are now out of that market. And that kind of remains to be seen. Like there's a possibility they could still be in on Chapman, but if they're out, his market looks like giants and question marks because there's some very real question as to uh, how much the Blue Jays are in that market, whether the Mariners are in. I mean, you can maybe squint and see the Angels doing it, but like I really struggle to find any other clubs that would be seriously in for Matt Chapman. Uh, The other thing is that like the qualifying offer is killing his market is just weighing it down even further. And also, you know, like Bellinger, some of the red flags 
in his profile and the fact that his defense has been declining and that from mid-May on last year, uh, he was not a particularly good major league hitter. You can point to like the injuries that he played through and some of the hand stuff that he was battling. And you can look at the uh, exit velocities and the, the way that he strikes the ball and, you know, kind of see, well, if we can get this guy healthy and help him just kind of improve the shape of his contact a bit, like there could be, uh, you know, a pretty special bat in here. But without a market, without multiple teams bidding, it's kind of hard to see him getting a nine-figure deal unless there's somebody who's going to, you know, somebody gets hurt or, uh, you know, a team enters at the 11th hour here. Like you said, it just doesn't seem like there's much leverage there. Yeah. And so you look at how this could connect to the Blue Jays, okay? And so we do know this is publicly documented. The Blue Jays made Matt Chapman an offer for $20.325 million, and he declined it. That's the qualifying offer. That happened. That's a matter of public record that that has occurred. Right now, if you're the Blue Jays at this point in time, would you offer him that same contract? Would you make him a more creative offer? Or what's your read on how this could proceed? Because when I look at it, I'm like, if if you wanted that 20.325 over one year, you just deepen the overall core of position players on this team – I think that'd be a good thing for this ball club. I'm not holding my breath and thinking that they're necessarily going to do it, but they did make him that offer in November. Sure. Um, And that was prior to spending money on Kevin Kiermeyer and Isaiah Kier-Falefa and Yariel Rodriguez. And the Blue Jays have now put themselves in a payroll position where they don't have a ton of buffer between where they're at CBT wise and the second luxury tax threshold. Uh, certainly not $21 million worth of buffer. So uh, I think Ross Atkins was pretty explicit recently when he yeah. said, look, if we were to add operationally, it would require some subtraction. And I don't know if, uh, you know, Santiago Espinal's $2.7 million is quite the scale of subtraction yeah. that he was referring to. Uh, so look, we, we do know that like the Blue Jays front office does always have the latitude to approach ownership, Rogers communications with special case scenarios and to say, hey, there is a really good baseball and business case to be made here to exceed uh, the, the payroll budget that we had previously been working on um you know freddie freeman special case scenario shohei otani special case scenario Corey seager special case scenario matt chapman special case scenario i'm not so sure ben yeah yeah again not holding my breath and, and you're you know the public comments that we have from ross atkins suggest that the Blue Jays do not expect to make a substantial addition, right? You know, they're saying, if we add, we're going to have to subtract. So in all likelihood, this is the team in front of us. But it's a really interesting storyline. Obviously, Matt Chapman had two really good seasons with the Jays. Hit a ton down the left field line. Fair and gone. What a rocket off the bat of Matt Chapman to blow it open here in the fifth. I understand he didn't hit for much of the second half of last year, but I, I still think he's a good player. He's a good major league player. Um, so well, let, let me put on record. Like I think the blue Jays should sign Matt Chapman to a short term right. high value yeah. deal. What I'm saying is I don't believe that at this time they will, but right. I think that they should, because just looking at the roster on paper, he would make them better. 
And it is imperative that the Blue Jays build the best, most functional roster possible for 2024 because there's a lot riding on this series. And, you know, you can just look ahead at the cliff that's coming in two years. And uh, our, our, you know, that cliff is just going to get closer and closer uh, at a rapid pace, particularly if this season doesn't go very well for the Blue Jays. So I think that if they could add Matt Chapman this year and have him play every day at third base, have Justin Turner just DH, not have to worry about playing so much in the field, bump Isaiah Kiner-Falefa into more of a part-time Whit Merrifield-esque role where he's bouncing around and using him really situationally in matchups that make sense and just like bump everyone down a peg where Davis Schneider, Ernie Clement, Santiago Espinal are now like your depth options um, rather than guys who who are playing as regularly as they may be. Uh, I think that the Blue Jays would be better off for it, not to mention the defensive upside that Matt Chapman still brings. Obviously, he's been declining a bit the last couple of years, but he still is a very, very good defender at third base. And you look at this Blue Jays pitching staff, which they are counting on to be very good again in 2024 as it was in 23. It's not like they have five strikeout artists in the rotation. They have one in Kevin Gosman, maybe a second in Yusei Kikuchi, but guys like Barrios, Bassett, Manoa, these are guys for whom the ball is in play and you have to play sound defense behind them. Well, I'm glad you said that because, you know, yes, like, you know, of course, when I say I'm not holding my breath, it's more expectations and it's the expectations that Ross Atkins has has set publicly, you know, and but end of the day, you know, this is a baseball podcast. This is not a corporate finance podcast. And so, you know, when we're talking about how to make a baseball team better, this team would be better if Matt Chapman was on it and Ernie Clement was nowhere near the discussion, right? Like, that's pretty clear. And if you look at it through the lens of what do the Yankees want to happen? The Yankees want Matt Chapman to sign with the Giants. They don't want him to sign with the Toronto Blue Jays. The Orioles don't want him to sign with the Toronto Blue Jays. So that kind of gives you an insight into, hey, maybe it's actually a good idea for the Blue Jays to consider this. And especially if the price isn't seven years and, you know, whatever it is, 175, whatever he was hoping for at the start of the offseason, if there is a shorter term deal, yes, that is a good thing to do. And if it can work as far as, you know, structuring that payroll, then that is something that, you know, ATL gives its stamp of approval to. Yeah, I don't think the money is coming out of my salary. <laughs> if, if it is, this is a different discussion, ben, but uh, I don't think that it is. So, yeah. Well, yeah, let's hope not. Um, we will keep an eye on the Chapman developments. But um, but yeah, let's also switch over to the pitching side for the Blue Jays, in particular, some of their depth uh, in the starting rotation. So Ricky Tiedemann, top Blue Jays prospect, is dealing right now with some left knee hamstring inflammation. So he was bumped from that. Uh, Grapefruit League opener where he was expected to make the start. Right now, he's resumed playing catch and is gradually ramping up. Uh, I guess, you know, what do you make of this big picture? It's not great coming off of the 2023 that Ricky had when he obviously battled injuries and didn't have the season that anyone expected him to. And then even when he was back on the mound, he kind of lost the feel for his change up a little bit and had to make some adjustments and, and battle through that. So it's certainly not how you want him to begin his 2024, particularly uh, considering the fact that like, there's a lot of people in the organization who are just raving about the, the build of Ricky Tiedemann in this camp. Uh, It's, you know, you're always kind of cautious with best shape of his life or this guy's packed on muscle or that guy looks great sort of stuff of this 
time of year. But uh, by all accounts, he really did achieve some things uh, conditioning and nutrition wise over the off season. Uh, and his stature has increased quite a bit. Remember, this is a guy who, before he got into the Blue Jays organization, just had not been exposed to a very professional training environment. Like he was just like lifting some very janky weights in his garage. So being in Dunedin and having access to everything the Blue Jays have at their player development facility all the resources down here it seems like that has really paid off in spades for ricky tiedemann and he just keeps building on that each year uh as you know with 2024 like this was always going to be a year like he was never going to throw 200 innings this yep. year so if it just sets him back a little bit at the beginning of the season it's not the worst thing in the world uh you know the blue jays wanted to kind of build him up to like four or five inning outings by the end of camp so if they end up getting him there by mid-april late april like it's not the worst thing in the world everything with ricky tiedem in this year is really just about putting him like in position to continue building the foundation of being a frontline starting pitcher continuing that development increasing the innings building that workload base um and taking another step towards achieving the very obvious potential that he has is one of the best left-handed pitching prospects in baseball so it's not what you want but it's it's not the worst thing in the world either yeah it's a little concerning for sure and i think at this point at least for me like i won't be surprised if he starts the season on the injured list now i won't be surprised either if he can you know find a way to restore that health and build up and be in a good position but this is the weird thing about spring this time of year is you don't have to put players on the injured list because you don't have an active roster. So you can just play it out and there's no need for the team to make a decision, meaning there's no need for the team to reveal information about how serious they actually think it is. So for now, we know he's throwing off flat ground. We know that no pitcher at this point in spring wants to be throwing off flat ground. You want to be on a mound. You want to be competing. Live BP is into your games and doing that ramp up. And clearly, you know, at this point, he's going to be at least a week behind and maybe he can cram that in. But you just start reading between the lines and I'm not trying to be too dismal here, but I just kind of look at it and it's going to be a challenge now that he's missed a, a chunk of time um, and we'll see where it leads. But certainly a really fun prospect to watch and uh, one that has huge implications for, for the Jays moving forward with what he can do in their pitching staff. Yeah, it's not the worst thing in the world if you have to start the year on the IL because you were probably only looking at realistically like a 100 to 120 inning season from him this year anyway. I know that's kind of arbitrary and obviously the Blue Jays are going to monitor like a lot more uh, empirical data than that and they have like a, a ton of baselines and a, a really rich understanding of like what Ricky Tiedemann looks like when he's at his best and when he's refreshed and when he's ready to take the mound and be effective and what he looks like when he's fatigued and when he's at risk of injury and like when they need to back off. So obviously they were going to monitor that throughout the year and try to put him in the best position possible. But yeah, like we, like I said, we're not talking about somebody who's like, oh no, he's not going to get to 200 innings this year. Like he was never going to get to 150. So like everything about what the Blue Jays are doing with Ricky Tiedemann right now in spring early season is about just continuing that development and honestly like putting him in the best position possible to impact the big league club because when you talk about yeah. like stuff when you talk about strikeout ability like this guy has as much of it in the organization this side of kevin gosman and if he hadn't gotten hurt 
last year and dealt with the hell stuff he did last year, I think we're talking about a guy who's already made his big league debut. Like I think he yep. would have been on the Blue Jays in 2023. So the goal is for him to be on the Blue Jays in 2024, helping them win games, helping them reach the postseason and get deeper into October than they have. So everything that they do with Ricky now and like how they get past his injury and build him up in 2024 is going to be with sights set on that goal on him being in a Blue Jays uniform later this year. For sure. And, you know, you don't need 150 innings from him, but you probably need 80, you know, to continue his progression and his his ramp up as a as a major league starting pitcher candidate. Um, so you want to get him healthy, but at the same time, you can't rush this. You can't try to, you know, get get ahead of yourself and, and force the issue. Um, so it makes sense for the Blue Jays to be cautious here. Absolutely. All right. Couple other pitchers to mention before we sign off here for the week. Mitch White, Bowden Francis. I was kind of captivated on the weekend when Mitch White was pitching in Tampa against the Yankees uh, on on Sportsnet, and you had uh, him facing off against Juan Soto and Aaron Judge. And this is as tough as it gets for really any pitcher in baseball. That combination is is, is really really impressive. Um, and I thought Mitch White did okay. His stuff looked pretty lively. You mentioned the velo before. Um, that velo was there against Judge and Soto, but he wasn't able to retire them. He walked Soto. He allowed a, a double to Aaron Judge. So not exactly what you're hoping for. Again, this is early. You don't want to read too much into one individual outing, but Mitch White, to me, he's interesting, but I have a lot more confidence in Bowden Francis. Yeah, Mitch White went to the deep end there uh, and look like Bowden Francis retired Juan Soto, but he did it on a double up curveball that he hung way up in the zone and Soto like just missed it. Right. So like there, you know, it's you don't really read too much into the results at this time of year. You certainly do read into the process. And I think it was good for both of them like you know there's really to me like not many questions about the quality of Bowden Francis's stuff at this point or about his composure on the mound his metal like he just doesn't rattle he's uh you know he's he's pretty composed and robotic out there I think the the question with him for the Blue Jays is just like can he hold his stuff over four or five innings uh you know I don't think there's really any question about two innings maybe even three but like can he be uh, you know, a starter who gives you five. Like that's probably the question with him. Um, and he is also working on a splitter that he's trying to incorporate this year, which uh, we'll see. That's a very hard pitch to learn and to trust. Like there's a reason why there's only like, I don't know, six guys in the big leagues who throw it, two of them on the Blue Jays. Uh, it's a very hard trip to master and to kind of learn the grip of, and it can be very easy to be discouraged with it when it's inconsistent. So, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see because that would be a good weapon for him against lefties. Lefties are always hunting heater against Bowden Francis. So, you know, that splitter could be a bit of a neutralizer. But you mentioned Mitch White, like, the stuff is encouraging just based off of what we've seen from him in the past at the big league level. And you're right. He has to get big league hitters out. He has to get results. That's the business that he's in. But up to 98, throwing pitches that were harder than anything we've seen from him at the big league level. Uh, I talked to him after the game and he says he feels as good as he has since like 2017 when he was coming up the Dodgers system. And like, I don't know how many Blue Jays fans are kind of aware of like the prospect shine that 
was on Mitch White at that time, but he was regularly flirting with 100. He had multiple pitches. Everyone thought the Dodgers were going to develop him into this great starter. And then he just had like injury after injury after injury. He had a, you know, he had some sh- persistent shoulder stuff that gave him setbacks when he was with LA he had some freak stuff like uh you know he had a broken toe and like a herniated disc in his back even just last year I don't know how many Blue Jays fans are aware of just how hurt Mitch White was like he started the year hurt carrying an injury from late 2022 brought that into camp in 23 had to get injections and had to be set back and like had to do all this rehab stuff and just like chased his season for the first half until he was DFA'd and it really wasn't until that point when he passed through waivers that he had like a week to just check out and um like not only like physically get right but also mentally get right and sort of figure out how he was going to get things back on track and that's really when he sort of turned things around got healthy worked on some mechanical stuff and had the end to the season uh that he did where he was throwing harder and seeing results so it seems like he's carried that forward into 2024 obviously now the thing for him is to is to get hitters out more consistently yeah and and look spring is a time for for possibility and for potential and for hope and there's definitely reason to have hope that mitch white can do better in 2024 than he did in 2023 i i think the reason i like bowden francis is it's a little bit less of a hope and pray feel. And it's a little bit more of, I mean, to your point, A, the guy just has really good composure and preparation. You like all of that. And then you start looking at the objective measures. The results themselves are good. And then even on a pitch data type level, he by stuff plus and command plus, which you can find at fan graphs, he's above average with his stuff plus. He's above average with his command plus. That's a really good combination, you know, for especially for a guy who doesn't get a ton of attention, who's probably, you know, on the on toward the bottom of the Blue Jays depth chart. But that's a really good pitcher, someone with above average stuff and above average command to have as your number six, maybe number seven starter. Yeah, and you're not going to see good stuff plus metrics from Mitch White last year when he was pitching hurt, uh, you know, and when his like confidence honestly was pretty shot at the big league level. And when like, and he'll tell you this, like he just felt like he was heading for DFA last year because Mm. he just wasn't healthy. And um, like, like baseball players are realists, man. They can see the writing on the wall (laughs) with the way things that are going. So like, I think that he just battled all of that last year, but I do wonder, and we don't have this data right now but like how his stuff plus would look this spring and how it would have looked even down the stretch last year in buffalo when like he finished his year with like a seven or eight start run where he had a like a you know 180 ra or something and he was striking out over 30 percent of the batters he faced um like we're still talking about like a guy with a starter's arsenal if his fastball is going to be 98 and then he's got like that high 80s cutter that um he can kind of like work away from right handers um and then obviously like his slider he calls it a slider it looks like a sweeper and like kind of registers as a sweeper but he calls it a slider and then also like the low 80s curveball like he's got four pitches that he can use like north south east west with velocity separation and they move differently and then obviously everything just plays off of 98 which is like pretty overpowering um so if he's convicted and confident and letting it rip targeting like the spots that he needs to and really leaning into the depth of his arsenal like 
I think there's something there. There's a reason why the Blue Jays added him back to the roster. Like they could have cut ties at the end <laughs> of last year, right? And hey, man, you, you only have to look as far as Julian Merriweather to see that like you can DFA a guy and let him get to another organization and he just has that eureka moment or just his health finally doesn't betray him and all of a sudden he becomes like a high leverage reliever for the Chicago Cubs last year. Julian Merriweather had an excellent season. So I'm uh, I'm certainly not ready to write off Mitch White when he's out here throwing 98. Man, Julian Merriweather. There was a time that I thought he was going to be a huge find for the Blue Jays. Um, but it's a huge find for the Cubs, dude. He is. Yeah, he had a really good year last year. Um, 72 innings, 3.38 ERA, struck out 32% of the batters he faced. Love it. That's what you want to see. That's uh, that's late in pitching and stuff leverage right there in yeah. big moments on the Cubs at Wrigley Field. Like they just were, they happened to be like holding on to the like obvious potential, like package of potential of Julian Merriweather at the time when it finally came through. At the time when he finally put together at like the age of I don't even know, probably thirty two <laughs> at that point yeah. for Merriweather. So. Uh, you know, you'd never write off a pitcher with obvious potential. And like, look, there's a reason why, like the Blue Jays kept giving him opportunities. There's a reason why the Blue Jays keep giving Mitch White opportunities because teams are very good at recognizing good stuff. Um, you know, elite pitch profiles, things that could work, could play, could be dominant at the big league level. They're very good at recognizing that the real magic is in just trying to get everything synced up when it comes from like a health and a mechanics and a release point and a delivery standpoint. I mean, that's where you really lean on your coaches and your developers to, to help players make gains as the blue Jays did last year with Mitch white, when they made some mechanical tweaks with him in, in Buffalo that really increased his velocity. Yeah, pitching is wild. Pitching is unpredictable. I mean, you can have guys late in their careers. You think about Chris Bassett, age 34, he has the best season of his career. And, you know, that's after 15 plus years pitching at a very high level. It comes together for him. In some ways, you know, you make those little adjustments and they can have huge unexpected impact. And so it's tough to predict year to year what you're going to get. But historically, the Jays have done a really good job of that in recent seasons. And yeah, we'll see if Mitch White can be a part of that. I'm, you know, being totally candid, I'm not totally sold yet, but we'll see, right? Like, this is why we play the seasons. This is, you want to see what actually happens. And I'm not ruling anything out, but, uh, you know, I'll want to see, I'll want to see it against some, some really good hitters. I'll want to see some good results because the other thing is you can have 98 to 100 like Nate Pearson. It doesn't always work. So you need more than just pure stuff. I would bet that when Kevin Gosman was DFA'd at what the age of 29, that you probably weren't sold. Uh, right. You know, when, when he was struggling, right? Like, you know, Mitch White right now is 29. Nate Pearson's still only 27. Like, it, for a lot of pitchers, like, it doesn't happen until later in their careers that they kind of figure it out. Like, with Mitch White, like, it's like, it's such small things, right? These are just such fine margins. It's just being healthy. Um, finding that like regaining that confidence in the on the mound and then just a couple of little mechanical tweaks just like a little something in like his back leg load like a shortening up the arm action a little bit and just like a cue to kind of get his arm up before he moves forward out of his load just so he's more linear and efficient and like ready to throw and not dragging his arm through his delivery. Just little, you know, tweaks like that in this fine motor skill uh, practice that is pitching can uh, really have some pretty dramatic effects. 
for sure. All right. Well, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on everything uh, down in Florida. Looking forward to your uh, writing and TV coverage coming up there, Arden. And I'll see you down there in a couple days. Yeah, see you in a few, man. All righty. Well, that is it for us this week on At The Letters. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks as well to our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. We will talk to you soon on ATL.